well, first chapter of Colossians. It's all first Colossians. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for giving us your word. We ask that you open it now to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. And we pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're uh, focusing on passionate followers of Jesus, the third part in our, uh, in our well, in our motto, in the uh, focus for our year, is this idea of being passionate followers of Jesus. What does that mean, specifically? And uh, in the spirit of that, we're exploring Colossians, which has a lot to say on the subject. Uh, we begin Colossians in Colossians 1. You'll be shocked to learn. Uh, predictable, but important to begin there. And before we kick off, we might jump into a little bit of historical context about that letter, because historical context, because I'm a history guy, is always interesting for me, so I put you through it. Um, but it's usually interesting for everyone. Sometimes it's critical for understanding a passage, and we dare not neglect it. Uh, we know that the, the apostle Paul and Timothy were arrested and hauled off to Rome. Paul intended to plead his case to the Roman emperor. And while he was in prison, he wrote some letters, as good a use of his time as any, um, being in prison and all. And Paul had never actually been to Colossae. He'd never been to the place where this church was. But in the city of Ephesus, where the Ephesian church was, uh, Paul had worked with and commissioned a bloke named Epaphras. And Epaphras was commissioned to go back to Colossae and to the surrounding areas to spread the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus. And then they all went their respective ways. But then, Paul's just hanging around in Roman jail, looking for something to write about when, blow me down, who should be hauled into Roman prison alongside him? Good old Epaphras. How about that? Small world, eh? Timothy probably chips in as they're bolting Epaphras' chains to the wall. Sure is, says Paul. G'day, Paphos. What's going on? Epaphras replies, strike rates, Timo and Big P. What's going on, guys? It's possible that meeting had a more kind of Mediterranean ethnic flavor than uh, the, the summer bay that I just gave it, but it's close enough. Epaphras updates Paul on the happenings in Colossae. The young church there is vibrant and faithful, but not without its share of problems. They were being pressured into incorporating the, uh, the keeping of the Jewish law into their church culture, a force that was affecting a lot of the young churches. And some elements of their church were being blessed with more spectacular blessings than others, and they were a little too proud of it. And Paul decides he's going to write a letter to that young church to straighten them out. And... Uh, his main message is that once they have the gospel, it changes them, and it changes everything. And that means that every one of them in that church, every Christian, is living an empowered life to live the kind of God-glorifying life that God commands. All that it requires is the gospel alone to become a passionate follower of Jesus. And Paul's turn of phrase in verse 10 seems to nicely capture this idea really well. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. A life worthy of the Lord. So let's step through this passage. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae and the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So Paul casually drops in that he's an apostle in the greeting, lets him know that he's writing from a position of authority, but then smooths it off with an approving tones and highlighting their positive elements. God's holy people, the faithful brothers and sisters, classic Paul. 
a little bit of stick, a little bit of carrot. Good work. And then from verse 3, oh, we go to halfway through verse 6. We always thank God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. This is a pretty good report. Faith, hope, and love attributed to them. Faith in Jesus' love for God's people and hope for the resurrection and the promise that comes with it. But note that the cause of this wonderful character in them is the true message of the gospel that has already come to them. He's praising the Colossians without laying on the credit for them specifically too thick. And he goes on to mention how the gospel is transforming the world and that they're just part of that transformation movement. He says, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, and who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. So the church of Colossae is worthy of some praise for their loving and faithful qualities, but ultimately, all that praise is due to God, who is spreading his gospel to all the nations and changing the hearts of many people through his faithful servants. This is useful to know because it means that this is a generally applicable message. It means it can apply to all of us. If this were a really specific problem or a really specific message to something that Colossae was suffering, then we might have difficulty applying it because we are not the church at Colossae. But this is how the gospel works then and now and everywhere. And next week we'll look at the other half of this chapter in which Paul starts to wax pretty theological about what the gospel is, but for now we look at his prayer for this church. It's a prayer that sketches out a vision for mature believers living in the light of the gospel in verses 9 through 14. I'll run through those again. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Now, in the Greek, that is one big run-on sentence, and I think it keeps going on to the end of the chapter, and translators mercifully put in a couple of commas and full stops so we can understand what Paul's trying to say. But we'll break it down a bit more because there's actually quite a lot in here, and it's worth grabbing onto. Verse 9 for this reason, since the day that we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. They're praying that God will give knowledge of his will, that is, the ability to grasp what God wants from them. And they're praying this through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, that is, that they are sensitive and attentive to what the Holy Spirit is teaching them and that they'll be able to use that to determine God's will. 
Why would he pray for that? Verse 10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's how you live a God-honoring life. That is what a passionate follower of Jesus is meant to do. This is the kind of righteous life that God desires, to use James's words. And so the reverse must also be true in this as a warning if you are not being sensitive and attentive to the Spirit of God. You cannot possibly be doing God's will and cannot possibly be living the kind of life that is pleasing to Him. That's the first challenge that we can pull from this. Are we sensitive to the understanding that the Spirit can give to us? Can we say that we are listening and hearing the voice of the Spirit in our lives? That's a hard question to answer for most of us. God doesn't communicate in clear visions and audible words typically, and we tend to be very suspicious of anyone who claims that he does. We more distill the Spirit's teaching from what we glean from studying Scripture, from the circumstances that are introduced into our lives and the way that we're meant to grow through them, the opportunities that God gives us, and the occasional gut feeling that we hope is the voice of God and not just a quirk of digestion. Listening to God is hard. That's not completely correct. Listening to God is a skill. It's hard when you start, but the more you do it, the easier it gets, and the more natural that action becomes. It's not like finding a radio station on which God is speaking. Like you have to dial in and then you find it and, ah, oh, got it. Like you have to pray hard enough the right way and then it all comes clear. You try and serve God, you get correction, you get wiser, you get better. Listening for the voice of the Spirit is a skill which, like all skills, requires practice to perform with confidence. Now that's all well and good, but what do you do if you're not confident now? How do you know if you are listening right, if there's no audible voice, and if it's possible to listen wrong? And Paul gives us four signs in this prayer. The life that is worthy of the Lord can be seen in four ways, Paul says. And so we can look at our lives, or if we're really brave, we can ask someone we trust and who will shoot us straight to look at our lives. And if our lives look like this, we have a pretty good assurance that we are listening to God and living in a godly fashion, that we are listening and acting right, living as passionate followers. If we're missing some of these beats, then maybe some attention may be need, needed in those areas. Now, the only thing a, uh, a pastor loves more than a three-point sermon is a sermon that you can wedge into an acronym. And today, I have chosen the word DING. <laughs> Diligent intimate, novaturient, and grateful. What? Yes, I know. I had to dig deep for that one. Go on, Jan. Thanks. There we go. Enduring. It's not... It's close enough. You know, so no one can say I didn't try. And I went through a lot of thesauri trying to find an N-word that meant enduring. So why ding? Well, it's a fun word to say, and it doesn't need a why. But for extra flavor, ding is a word that I'm aware of because it's, it's slang in some parts of, uh, of PC and computer gaming culture. To ding is to level up. It is to progress to the next rung of experience. It is often accompanied in a game you are playing by a flash of life and a chime, a ding. 
that lets the player know that, ding, you have successfully completed all the basic challenges and you are free to progress to level two, to what comes next. And the Colossians have received the gospel. It is changing their lives. They are saved, and now they are ready, Paul prays, to step up to level two, to living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Thus, ding. So, back to the text. How does one live a life worthy of the Lord? Well, we start back with our first reason in verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. I've called this diligence. And I've called this diligence because it's important that we don't get good works confused with good deeds. Good deeds is a mostly useless term for particularly saccharine acts of obvious kindness. The Boy Scouts popularized the idea of good deeds because uh, performing a certain number of good deeds was required in the Boy Scouts ladder to qualify for certain badges and recognition. So you would end up with Boy Scouts scurrying around looking stereotypically for old ladies to help cross the road. Which reminds me of a joke. Three Boy Scouts are reporting to their Scoutmaster. What good deed have you done today? He asked them. Well, we helped an old lady across the street. It took three of you to do that? Yes, she did not want to go. <laughs> We're not interested in good deeds as a kind of moral currency. Scripture talks about work and good works much more broadly. Quite literally, anything, to have, anything you have to perform effort to do is a work. Anything you must work to do. This is a broad umbrella of actions including the safe escorting of senior citizens across busy intersections, but also including the length one goes to to serve their family, their local church, lest we forget good works include how we conduct ourselves at work. Christians today are increasingly required to wrestle with our responsibility to shape and serve society, to care and preserve even for God's natural creation. Any activity that we undertake that conceivably holds moral value, that is worth doing, can be done morally, that is badly, or morally, that is to say, as a good work, or immorally, that is a bad work. And Paul suggests that good works, the diligent fulfillment of our obligation to love God and love one another in every aspect of our lives, that those good works are a fruit from the mature Christian's life. They occur naturally, visibly, and recognizable. A good work is the performance of some obligation to God or another person without yielding to the temptation to be selfish. That means getting to work five minutes early and leaving five minutes late rather than the other way around. It means defending the weak from the exploitation of the strong. It means following through on promises and vows and agreements whether they are written or spoken or implied. It's living your life generously for those around you because you are promised life everlasting. And if you are promised life everlasting, you have plenty of life to spare. That's the kind of life that the world can't help but see and then ask, what does that person know that I don't? That is living in the gospel way. And if you aren't living in a gospel way, it doesn't matter how you present the gospel to folks who've never heard it, because why would they believe 
what you have to say about the life-changing gospel if you don't seem to believe it yourself. Good works are the fruit of a diligent believer. Now in the final slice of verse 10, we have our second thing. We have growing in the knowledge of God, called this being intimate. We have a very sterile idea of knowledge. If I said, picture a place of great knowledge, I would bet that most of you are either picturing a a lab full of interchangeable poindexters peering into microscopes, or a fusty old library full of crinkly yellow papers and impossibly tall bookshelves with one of those slidey ladders that goes around the outside. Those are places of empirical knowledge, of scientific knowledge. We can say that water freezes at zero degrees Celsius in an environment featuring one atmosphere of pressure. Done. Knowledge known. There is nothing more to know about that fact. You can remember it, and then you never need to learn it again. But that is not the way that we know God. We know God relationally, in a similar way to how we would know any other person. It's why I've called it intimacy in this acronym. So when Paul prays for the Colossians to be growing in their knowledge of God, he is not praying that they would have a better grasp of a field of study, but that they would know God more intimately. The Bible sometimes uses the word know euphemistically for the activities of husband and wife. Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. Adam knew his wife, if you know what I mean. Because there is no occasion when a person is more vulnerably intimate with another than when they are with their lover in that moment. And the very recently popular notion that intimate relations are purely a physical expression and needn't be such a big deal fails for a number of reasons, the most pronounced of which is the fact that those intimate relations, when performed with a partner who is not willing, become the most violating and hated act of which a human being is capable. And everyone knows it. To be known is to be intimately vulnerable. And this use of the word know in Scripture, when it occurs with Adam and Eve, comes shortly after another famous use of the word know about the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The man has become like us, knowing good and evil. When Adam and Eve fell, they did not become more academically knowledgeable about the questions of ethics. The knowledge changed them. They were vulnerable to it. Simple obedience to God was no longer possible. They knew good and evil. They gained a capacity to choose good over evil and a catastrophic capacity to choose evil over good. And to know that was so fundamentally changing that it killed them and divorced them from intimacy with God. And the gospel is the story of God coming to earth to know us and becoming so intimately vulnerable that we kill him. But he is a God of life and death in knowing him dies. And now to increase in the knowledge of that God is a gift and a privilege that we have. You never finish knowing God any more than you can finish knowing a person. There's always more to know. 
People are not dead knowledge. The relationship will deepen, strengthen, grow. It'll fracture and weaken if someone pulls away. It'll mend only if they both draw together. It'll go nowhere if one party digs in their heels. And if you don't feel like you know the Lord more this year than you did last year, who do you suppose is the one digging in their heels? A mature believer is increasing in their knowledge of God, in their intimacy with God. Now, verse 11 is our troublesome end. Enduring. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. I called it novaturiant before, which is a word I also just recently learned, but enduring probably fits better. But a person who is being novaturiant is a person who is sincerely seeking and striving for a substantial change in their life. They are looking for a new way to live. They're not kidding around. And to come to know Christ and the saving message of his gospel is to be substantially changed. The substance of you is changed. Carl Jung, all the psych students' ears pop up, had this notion about ideas. He said that people don't have ideas. Ideas have people. How can an idea have people? It's not real, it's not a thing. But what he means is that ideas have a kind of power, and they do. Most people go through life without spending much time wondering about what ideas have them. Have you ever opened your mouth and suddenly found it's your dad talking? Or your mum? Have you ever had a friend who went to a shady seminar and then came back weird and very keen to sign you up to their investment scheme? Or did you watch a YouTube video with a friend and find that friend now firmly convinced that the moon landing was faked? Or that 9-11 was an inside job? Or that maybe a nephew who went to Griffith for an arts degree and then came back as a member of the Australian Communist Workers' Alliance? Or here's a good one. Have you ever seen a group of middle-class white Australian teenage boys who think that they are grown-up African-American hip-hop artists? Serious problem. Have you ever got so swept up in an idea or a fad yourself that you look back on it now and you have no idea what you were thinking? Ideas are incredibly powerful. They can sweep you up. Our society pulses with them. And they move around like waves rolling people up and then dumping them on the shore of their realized delusion. Now, the gospel is an idea, so it has some of the same qualities, but it's not just an idea. When it comes along and rolls you up, people who have known the old you will have no idea what happened to you. They'll be shocked and they will wonder what happened to that old person. But It's an idea tied to the person of Jesus Christ, so it's not just an idea. It's an idea that exists in spite of the pounding waves of culture and human imagination. It's an idea of God. That means you are connected to God when you're doing it right. And when you are connected to God, those waves can't touch you. And if you are disconnected from God, then those waves of the surrounding culture will bash the gospel straight out of you. 
This is why Paul prays for the Colossians to have endurance and patience. They are taking on a life that is contrary to the world around them and the world is going to try and beat the gospel out of them. They need the glorious might of God to sustain them through that opposition. And if you've ever tried to live the gospel life, you know what that's like. I mean, think about it. The gospel includes the idea that you should live your life in a self-sacrificing way after the style of a man who was tortured to death just for doing that. That's a hard sell. And if it didn't have the truth of God behind it, then that idea would not last. Few of us here in this country face torture for our beliefs, but we face a more subtle erosion of our faith and obedience by the pressures of a world that insists that the real truth, the real thing that matters, the real idea is to be found in moon landing conspiracies or hip-hop enthusiasm or in the people united never being defeated or in money or in niceness or in human ideas of any number of kinds. So what ideas have you? When you make a decision, are you drawn first to the will of God or some other notion of how the world does or should work? Mature believers need endurance against a hostile world. And finally, gratitude, to be grateful. Verses 12 to 14. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There are very few things in a young person's character that are a better indicator of whether they will live a full, productive, happy life than if they display gratitude for what they already have. The opposite of gratitude is entitlement. It is the sense that one is owed something. And it can't be understated how toxic entitlement can become. It's charting pretty high on our list of social ills right now. I'm not speaking politically about entitlement, about social programs. I mean, the idea that people have, or that has people, perhaps, that the world owes them something. And most people know what I'm talking about if I reference the Columbine shootings. Columbine might not have been the very first school shooting, but it certainly seemed to be the one that started a cultural trend. It's a story that's hideously familiar to us now because it has been repeated so many times that when a school shooting crops up on the news, there's an instinct to change the channel as they might for any other rerun. Teenagers, almost uniformly white, middle-class teenage males, acquire deadly weapons, open fire on fellow students and teachers. They leave notes or journals, or more recently, and novelly Facebook entries before they do, often detailing their reasons for doing this terrible thing. And people struggling to understand this, they have pointed their fingers at a variety of things, and they can't be blamed for trying to explain what seems unexplainable. Where were the parents, they might say. Violent video games desensitized them. The bullying made them do it. Drugs made them do it. The devil made them do it. Everyone has personal feelings about every element on that list. 
But the notes always seem to be the same. The girls never noticed me. The world is against me. No one understands how smart I am and how stupid they all are. I'm not getting the recognition I deserve. The following is a short quote from the journal of Dylan Claybold, one of the Columbine shooters. About 26.5 hours from now, the judgment will begin. Difficult, but not impossible. Necessary, nerve-wracking, and fun. What fun is life without a little death? It's interesting when I'm in my human form knowing I'm going to die. Everything has a touch of triviality to it. Chilling? Absolutely. Crazy? More than a little. Evil? I have to say yes. But the thing that sickens me probably the most about reading these words is the, the pompous, presumptive sneer of it, the sense that this young man has the right to judge his fellow students to render a judgment of death on them because he felt he deserved more from them that he was getting. This weirdly detached sense of assurance that it's necessary and even fun and trivially right as if he's doing something just. He is entitled to this. Now obviously, everyone who lacks gratitude is not going to turn into a mass shooter, but the kind of mind that does that is not possible in a person who knows that they are a sinner who deserves nothing but who has been redeemed by God's grace. That every day of their life is a gift from God that they are going to share in an inheritance in the kingdom of light in which we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That is a fundamentally humble and grateful posture. So much unhappiness comes from entitlement and envy. And out of that unhappiness comes bitterness and hate and worse things. But the mature believer has access to a wealth of joy. They know that they are not entitled to better than they have. Not only that, but they have been given infinitely more than they could ever have deserved. If you revisit that fact every day, if it's the song of your heart that Jesus died for you and that you thank him for his mercy and love, then you are untouchable to the sin of envy. When you thank God, do you mean it? Do you chew that thought down to the bone? When Job was stripped back to his nakedness and poverty, his cry was, Naked I came into the world, and naked I shall depart. The name of the Lord be praised. Everything we have is a blessing. And mature believers live in that gratitude. That is the kind of righteous life that is worthy of the law. Diligence, intimacy, endurance, gratitude. Now, we've just come out of January. This is the last boarding call for New Year's resolutions. Take a moment tonight and reflect. Does this describe you? If it's not, then don't wait to pray. Pray tonight. If you want a pastor to pray with, there's a few of us floating around. If you'd rather do it with a friend, that's fine too. But this is the time and the place. If it is you who needs to pray, then repent tonight before God and resolve to do better. He is faithful to us and he deserves us to be faithful to him. Diligence, intimacy, endurance, 
and gratitude. Let's strive together to make this year our most faithful yet and strive to make this life one that is worthy of our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. We are grateful for all that you've done, for the changing, saving power of the gospel in our lives, for the work of Jesus on the cross. Help us to be grateful every day so that the world will see our gratitude and seek your face. Lord, help us to endure against the world and the compromises we are asked to make in our faith to fit in better, to get ahead or to gain something small and passing. Help us to endure every day so that the world will see our endurance and seek your face. Father, we ask that you draw us closer to you, that you forgive us for our stubbornness and help us to know you more intimately so that that knowledge of you changes us further into the image of your Son. Help us to be intimate every day so that the world will see that intimacy and they will seek your face. And Father, help us to live diligent lives in all the works you put before us. Make us strong for the task, faithful to our word, compassionate for the weak, courageous against injustice, and unflagging in our conviction to do what must be done and to do it right. Help us to live diligently so that the world will see our diligence and our good works and they will seek your face. May our lives echo today Paul's prayer for those believers 2,000 years ago. And may we live under the guidance of your Holy Spirit in lives that are worthy of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.